Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching them in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These were Jesus, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles to enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you, freely you have received, freely give. Alex. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus. You sent him for us, that we can know you. That when you saw the pain and hurt in the world, it moved you. You felt compassion. And it led you to do something about it. And so we pray today that we would hear from you. That we would capture your heart for those who are lost, those who are hurting. And that we would go out into this world having received your compassion and then extending it to others. And we pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. So um, this morning, our big idea, assuming it shows up, is um, that uh, compassion for the lost and hurting motivates Jesus' mission. Compassion for the lost and hurting motivates Jesus' mission. The way we're going to look at this passage is there's two layers to it. The first layer is the immediate layer. So Matthew is telling us what uh, happened, how Jesus responds, and then how he sends his disciples, the 12 apostles, out. The second layer, though, is the layer that Matthew would have also had in mind for its first audience and anyone else who would have read his gospel. The early church would have been reading this and understanding that, yeah, Matthew's telling us what happened, but there's also something that uh, we can learn from. There's these principles that we can see in terms of what Jesus is doing. And so there's both of those at work here. So again, compassion for the lost and hurting motivates Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he announces as good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, humanity gets reconciled to God. 
Humanity gets reconciled to one another and to creation. In the kingdom of heaven, God is restoring his creation through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about learning to live as citizens of his kingdom. It's learning to see what it means when, when you come into contact with him and Jesus becomes king, how you live with one another, with God, how you look at your life, your possessions, all, all of it. It's this dynamic, dynamic portrait of what happens when you come into contact with Jesus. But the chapters that have followed that we've spent the last uh, bit in begin to show us what happens when, Jesus, when people come to Jesus trusting that he's able to help them. As God's kingdom comes on earth, humanity and all of creation is being healed. It's being restored, and Jesus is at the center of all of it. The intersection between heaven and earth is Jesus Christ, and he carries the keys to the kingdom wherever he goes, and whatever he says and does, the kingdom of heaven follows. Hence, in verse 35 of chapter 9, what we see uh, Andrew had just read is this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. It's articulating that Jesus is proclaiming and bringing the kingdom, which is amazing. And you would expect Jesus would be delighted, that he'd be joyful, that it's happening, that people are entering into the kingdom. And you'd get, maybe get this little refrain of Jesus saying that, and yet that's not what we get. This is almost like a plot twist. Instead of joy, you see something different in Jesus. You see what seems to be grief and holy dissatisfaction. Now, why would Jesus be dissatisfied? If you read in verse 36 of chapter 9, we're told, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw. Jesus sees our pain. He saw the crowds. They were sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Without a shepherd, they were harassed and helpless. And this was so far from what God had intended for humanity. God created humanity, and he intended to be a shepherd to his people to guide them, to provide for them, to protect them, to lead them in such a way that they flourished in life. The image of a shepherd and sheep was supposed to be a picture uh, not simply of the basics being provided, you know, getting direction, provision, or protection. It was also this image of intimacy because shepherds knew their sheep individually. They knew their quirks, their personality, their habits. They knew which ones were prone to wandering more often, which got stuck in bushes, which ones were the grumpy ones, which were struggling with a wound and needed more attention or had an illness. And sheep, they knew their shepherd's voice because good shepherds did that. They talked with them. They they spoke to them. And the sheep learned to recognize their shepherd's voice. There was this intimate connection between their shepherd God's good plan from the beginning was that every living thing and every human would live in a good world and experience unhindered intimacy with God. And God's promise in Scripture is that he will restore that intimacy one day. In Habakkuk 2.14, it reads, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
And so when Jesus looks out at the crowds of people, he doesn't see a shepherd caring for them. He sees the absence of intimacy with God. He sees a people who are sick, exhausted, tormented, and led astray. He sees religious leaders failing to care, political leaders failing to lead well. He sees demonic forces oppressing people. He sees as sick and weary people. And it moves him. When you look out at our city, as you sit in a coffee shop or at work, and you see how people are doing and you listen to their conversations, what is it that you see in them? What are the conversations that people are having? When you look out at our church community, what, what is it that you see? Do you see the needs of the people? The hurt, the pain? Do you see suffering of those who are exhausted and sick, tormented, led astray? Jesus sees all of it. He sees it. And one of the questions you and I have to ask is, when we, uh, one of the questions that you and I will have and have already had in life as we've looked out at suffering in our world is we say, where are you, God? Don't you have a response to this? Don't you care about this injustice, this evil, this pain? And one of the answers that we see here is that he does. He sees it. And if you want to look at God's response to human suffering, you have to look at Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension. So what does Jesus do when he sees suffering? Jesus is moved to compassion. He is moved to compassion for us. Jesus sees all of those who were suffering outside of the kingdom, and it moved him. He felt compassion for humanity. The word compassion in Greek, it's this word, splanknizomai. Literally, it means Jesus was moved in his guts. He was moved in his guts for us. Deep within Jesus, something stirred when he saw the pain. Because this is not the way that things were intended to be. And what's striking about this passage is that we are not told that Jesus was moved by the prayers of the crowds. So he felt compassion. Or that Jesus was moved by their resilience to follow God. Therefore, he felt compassion. Jesus was moved by knowledge of, of, of God, and so he felt compassion. No, it's none of those things. It doesn't say any of that. It says Jesus was moved to compassion by our spiritual and physical suffering. Jesus saw the gap between what was meant to be and what was, and something inside of him moved. Because compassion isn't simply just feeling, having a deep feeling or emotion of pity for someone on an emotional or, or, or uh, mental level. It's a feeling that leads to action. You feel compassion for someone in need, and it leads you to show kindness to them. And compassion is a central uh, part of God's character. When you go back to the Old Testament, and you see how God reveals himself to Israel you see that compassion is central to who, how he identifies himself, how he makes himself known. In Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses, and the very first descriptor he uses for himself is this. In verse 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. When God appears to Moses in Exodus 3, and he, says to, and he speaks to Moses, about his people living as captives 
to Pharaoh, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. I have seen the misery. I have heard them crying. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down. He is moved to compassion, but he's also going to act in kindness towards them. Tim Keller, he once said, God is of such compassion that he comes not because we pray well, not because we're living well, but simply because we hurt. Compassion leads to showing kindness, to rescuing. That's what Jesus is all about. Jesus sees all of these hurting people, misled, wandering like sheep without a shepherd, in need of healing, and he comes to heal, to restore. Throughout his ministry, you see him do that. And upon seeing people in more pain in this moment, he doesn't grow numb, he doesn't get irritable, he doesn't stop caring, he feels compassion. He cares because that's who he is. Our hurting moves Jesus in his guts. The hurting of the world moves Jesus Christ to act. It's who he is. See, compassion leads Jesus to act. And his first action is to include his disciples. It's not what you would expect. Jesus doesn't say, see all the crowd, have compassion on them, and think, okay, I actually got to start like, doing a lot more. I got to actually start working longer days. What Jesus does is he says, now is the time to include my disciples. They're not just spectators. They're not just going to watch me and learn my teachings and be able to repeat them to others. They're going to enter into my work. Look at verse 37 of chapter 9. Then he said to his disciples, and he gives them a series of commands, and, and it goes like this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then later on, he sends them out and says, go. Jesus always intended for you, his disciples, to join him in his mission. He is not interested in fans who watch him and enjoy just his every move. He is interested in creating a people who become like him and then begin to do what he does people who live like he does, people who are moved to compassion and then begin to actually act that out. His disciples aren't these little helpers who simply just do a couple things on the side but never really get involved. Jesus expected his disciples to see the pain of others around them, to be moved by compassion, and then to go in his authority, praying, sharing good news, and bringing healing See, Jesus doesn't want us simply to receive his kindness. He wants us to show the kindness that he has shown us to others, for us to extend that to others. And so what we see in his response is, you know, on layer one, a specific order that he gives to his disciples in that moment. But that other layer, layer two, which speaks to us, are like the principles of how we might respond today. 
Because Jesus' response to the pain and suffering in the world is to send you out to bring his healing, his message, and his life wherever you go. And one of the reasons why we need to be reminded of this is because when we lose sight of God's compassion, we lose the heart of what drives his mission. When you lose sight of God's compassion, the mission becomes just a duty. It's another item on the to-do list rather than an articulation of the God that you love and worship, the one that you've encountered, the one whose compassion you have experienced yourself. And yet if we're honest, it's really hard to be compassionate. It's hard. You can, you can, you can hear about something and maybe even feel a bit bad, and then that's it. That's just where it stops. And sometimes, you know, cognitively, I know I should actually feel pity here. I don't really feel very much. If we're honest with ourselves, that happens more often than we want it to. So what are some reasons for that? Why do we lose sight of his compassion for others? Let me just offer four. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just four that I think are, are often at work in our lives. One... We're so consumed with our own lives. We're so busy with our jobs, our circle of friends and hobbies that we've failed to see those around us as we go about our everyday tasks. We're so consumed with ourselves that outside of someone banging us over the head with a cry for help, we miss out on all the cues. In practice, my plans and schedule trump the plans and priorities of God. Seek first my kingdom, says Jesus, and the righteousness of God, being rightly related to God and others. He says, seek that first, and I'll take care of the rest. But more often than not, we live in such a way where it's actually, let's take care of the rest first. Then we'll take care of the other part after. And Jesus is saying, we're getting the order mixed up. And because we're so consumed then with our lives, we'll focus more when a need comes up that we're aware of. We'll focus more on how inconvenient and costly it is to help than how challenging and inconvenient someone's suffering is. We'll care more about what others will think if we go and say this or do something and feeling uncomfortable than we do about actually expressing the compassion of God. Another reason is because we become desensitized to the pain of others. We're inundated with so much bad news about wars, about violence, about floods, about death, or worse, that there's a part of us that has actually become numb to it and we haven't really noticed. Our capacity to feel compassion has been desensitized. It's been limited. Human beings care. We care. We were created with a capacity to care and to feel. But if you think about it on a societal level, the amount of media that we are exposed to, it's diminishing our ability to feel and empathize with others. So when you read about a woman having to care for her 89-year-old mother who had salmonella poisoning, having to clean her, change her, help her move around the hospital, waiting to be admitted for 14 to 16 hours a day, 
and waiting for more than 60 hours to finally get admitted in her local hospital, you aren't actually really moved to compassion for this woman or her mom. You shrug it off as, man, that really sucks. That sucks that she has to go through that. And that's about it. You move on to the next article, the next thing to read about. That's desensitization to others' pain. We become numb to it as we continuously just get exposed to bad news and then move on to the next thing. Sometimes feeling something but not really knowing what to do about it. Another reason why we struggle with this is because we believe we're powerless to make a difference. The effect of reading about all these different tragedies around the world, in our city, hearing about them in conversations, often in places you've never, sometimes in places you've never heard of, in places you cannot access, in places you have no real way of helping, means that the majority of the time when you hear about people suffering, you are left with this belief that you're actually powerless to help. We have an awareness of the suffering in the world, but no outlet to help. And when that's like the common theme in all these different accounts that we hear, it's very easy to begin to believe, actually, there's nothing I can really do. But this is only a half-truth. It's true that in many cases, we can't necessarily go to that place. That only in some cases are you able to perhaps direct funds to. But the reality is that we actually can do more. We can actually intercede on people's behalf. And if you're a Christian, you actually believe that when you pray to your Heavenly Father, He hears you and that He can respond. It's not the only response, but it's a central part of the response. And yet at the same time, when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of this quote by C.S. Lewis. He, he, he wrote in a letter to a friend, and he said this, I doubt if it's the duty of any private person person to fix his mind on ills which he or she cannot help. This can even become an escape from the works of charity. This can even become an escape from the works of charity we really can do to those we know. And what he highlights is, is this thing where we're so prone to wanting to know what's going on in the world, and we, and we read about all these different tragedies going on, and yet at the same time, there are things going on in front of us in the lives of people we know and people we work with in our neighborhood, people we can actually do something about. But we are not doing anything. And, and we get so distracted by that that we miss it. We're not powerless. There are things that we can do to help in our city, in our church, in, our, in the life of people around us. If only we'd see it and allow God's compassion to move through us. And even in those places and other parts of the world, we can be praying, asking that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into that place. And the fourth reason that we struggle with this is because we've actually forgotten that Jesus had compassion on us. At its core, we've missed that Jesus had compassion on us. That when Jesus looked out at the crowd and saw the faces, you were one of those faces that you were shepherdless, that you were hurting, that you were helpless and harassed, and he was moved deep within him, and so he came. You and I, all of us, along with the rest of humanity, are the reason Jesus is willing to leave his throne in heaven, come down and become one of us, and suffer on our behalf. 
It wasn't a perfect character because it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect prayers because many of the times we weren't even praying. We weren't even interested. It was his compassion for our spiritual and, and, and physical helplessness. It was who he is. Romans 5, 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We must recapture his compassion if we are going to join Jesus in his mission. And when you do, Jesus highlights three things in our passage that are key to joining him. The first is that in verse, uh, in chapter 9, we see Jesus says, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Harvest is plentiful, workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this harvest. Pray for the Father to send out more compassionate, missional disciples. Jesus sees and feels the compassion, and it leads him to call you and I to pray that should tell you how high of a value he places on talking to your Heavenly Father. You see the pain, bring the pain, the person, the situation to your Heavenly Father. Ask your Heavenly Father to send workers to that place. Come and talk to my Heavenly Father. He's the Father of compassion and he is the Lord of the harvest. I can see that the harvest is already ready. The harvest is ripe for picking. Tell him to send workers because those workers will help lead those people to the Father of compassion. The way that you can make a difference is by trusting that Jesus, when he says the harvest is plentiful, is, it's true. You can trust him. The way to make a difference is actually by taking him at his word and responding. And I love this because he is saying we are not responsible for deciding that when the harvest is ready to be picked. Jesus says, our heavenly Father has the supreme authority. He is the sovereign one over the harvest. And he says, if you go out, you will find people who are ready. In fact, there's so many of them, and their needs are so great that you cannot do it on your own. You need others to go out with you, to go out before you. Pray and ask him to send workers. I was thinking about that idea of this harvest being uh, ready. And we have this, um, uh, 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 an uncle who uh, has a, a ton of blackberry bushes. And you know when blackberry bushes are, are, are ripe, some of them like get ripe before others. And you won't know until you actually go up to that place and you start picking them. Some of them are like way too ripe. They're like starting to ferment. You don't want those ones. But others are not fully there yet, and if you just wait a little bit longer. Our job is to go out and to ask God to send others to harvest. He is the one who decides. We are not responsible for how people respond to that message, to extending kindness. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to tr take Jesus out of his word, to trust him. So ask God to send workers who make known his compassion. Ask God to send workers into your workplace, into the coffee shop you regularly go to, to the park or school that you hang out in, to your neighborhood, to your family, to, into hospitals, into those different places you read about in the news, in Ukraine or Russia or Ethiopia or Yemen. 
Ask God to send workers who bring the truth, healing, and liberty found in Jesus to these places. Ask him to send workers who can join you. Because one of the things you'll notice as you read on in Matthew 10 is that Jesus doesn't send his disciples out on their own. He sends them out together. Secondly, receive his authority. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 38, Jesus called his disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. And in, in chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. What Jesus is doing on that first layer with these, the apostles, is he is giving them his authority to go out and to do what he did. And the apostles had this authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse. God has given his people spiritual gifts. Not everybody has the same spiritual gifts. One of the things we can do is pray and ask God to move and to heal and to restore. And we should expect that there will be times where he actually does answer that. And it's not something you earn. It's something that's given. Freely you received. You receive not an authority that is your own, it's his. Because you're in contact with him, because you've attached yourself to him. And it changes things. This is why if you read about in the gospel, and sorry, in the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, there are these guys who are trying to cast out demons. They're not followers of Jesus, and they're doing it, and they're claiming Jesus' name. And there's this, uh, borderline terrifying uh, story where what happens is the people who are possessed, uh, the demons turn to these guys who are trying to cast them out, and they're like, uh, Jesus we know, we've heard of Paul, who are you? They recognize the authority of Jesus, but these guys were pretending they haven't attached themselves to Jesus. The light of Jesus isn't in them. So they overpower the guys, and the guys end up fleeing and running away. What Jesus says to his disciples is, look, I give you my authority to go out and represent me and make me known. And one of the ways I, I thought about this is, some of you will be like, come on, Alex. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Galadriel gives Frodo a gift as they leave the Lothlorien, right? She gives him a crystal vial filled with water from her fountain, which is encased with some of the, some of the light of Arandil's star, this incredibly bright star. And she says to him in the movie, it will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. Frodo then will use this light at key moments. He uses this vial of light to drive away the giant spider Shelob on his mission to destroy the ring. Later on, there's another point where he is uh, tempted as one of the witch kings are flying and trying to get the ring he has. He grabs hold of that vial as it helps him not to give in to the pull of the ring. The authority that Jesus gives us is like that. However, it is not an object we carry. It's not this little vial we carry the light of Jesus in us wherever we go. Hence, Jesus will say to us on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Not you carry the light, 
You are the light of the world. Why? Because you have attached yourself to him. Because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That's what his authority is like, light. We carry his light into dark places to dispel the darkness. Jesus gave his disciples authority, his authority to do what he does, to bring healing, to proclaim his good news, to be his representatives wherever you go. And his authority gives us the ability to go on doing what we need to do, joining him in his mission to bring heaven on earth. Jesus doesn't give us this, this really like detailed manual. These disciples have been watching Jesus for a good while, helping him, you know, probably a bit on the periphery, but now Jesus is saying, now it's time to push you in. Now it is time to go. Now it is time to do the things that I ha you have been watching me do. And you're not going to do it alone. I'm going to send you out with, uh, with others, but... Now is the time I give you my authority to go and represent me in these different places you will go to. See, it does start with being with him and watching him, but it also includes doing it. Don't be an expert about what he's about and what he's done, but then fail to use what he's given you. You have authority because you've attached yourself to him. He sends you out to be his representative, to conduct yourself on his behalf. You have his light in you. You have his power by the Spirit. In fact, today is Pentecost Sunday, a day where we celebrate that God gave his people the Holy Spirit, empowering them to be his witnesses wherever we go. Finally, go and join him in his mission. Express that compassionate care. In chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus says to the, the disciples, Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Layer 1, go to the lost sheep of Israel. In that, it was a time-specific task to focus on the lost sheep of Israel. We're on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus and Pentecost. Now, the goal is to go to all the nations, to make disciples of all the nations. Jesus loves to send his disciples out. He loves to share in his ministry. He doesn't all hog it all up for himself. He doesn't want you to be a spectator. He wants you to experience what it is like to be one who brings other people into his presence through prayer. He wants you to experience what it is like to extend compassion and forgiveness to others. He wants you to witness and to lead others and actually forgiving others. He wants you to experience what it's like to bring healing through your words of encouragement, comfort, forgiveness, to bring restoration as you speak truth about who God really is and about who we are, to bring freedom as you talk about the freedom that Jesus brings through his life, death, and resurrection. And we might be a little uncomfortable doing this. You have to imagine that the disciples would have been, as they're trying this out for the first time, they're kind of awkward, kind of clunky. They probably sound exactly like Jesus, just not as good, because that's the only thing they've seen, and they've never done it. But this is fundamentally an expression of compassion when we join him in this. 
because he has come to restore humanity to relationship with God, to unite heaven and earth once again. And he wrote, wrote, heaven and earth, I repeat, are made for each other. And at certain points, they intersect and interlock. Jesus is the ultimate such point. We as Christians are meant to be such point, derived from him. And see, when you and I do this, when we participate in his mission, when we join him, we participate in the life that Jesus always intended for us. Mission isn't a side thing for those like extra committed, the uber committed, people who go to another country. It's like breathing and exhaling. Breathing in and exhaling. Have you ever tried to breathe in and take in as much air as you can but not exhale? Oh, you probably passed out if you have. You can't. What happens eventually? You just exhale all of that air out. It's impossible to keep all that air in. You were meant to breathe in and to exhale. You were meant to be on mission. It's part of being made in God's image. And it's why Jesus came to save you. And this guy, his name's Frederick Dale Bruner, he, he talked about how the Christian life and mission are the inhaling and exhaling of the Christian existence. You breathe in, that's the Christian life. But you breathe out, that is the Christian mission. You fail to join Jesus on his mission and you'll just, that's like you, you're not breathing. You're not actually existing the way you were meant to. But if you join him, you will find the Spirit of God filling your lungs with life, with words, with compassion for his world. And that is what you were made for. 